This is the official HITS training and consulting podcast. We are America's law enforcement canine training resource. We're raising the training bar for police dogs everywhere by discussing the intricate details of the training techniques used by the experts. HITS Radio is merging the training world with the real world. You've been there. We've been there, too. Welcome to HITS Radio. I'm your host, Jeff Meyer. Uh, today, we brought back another instructor that we've talked to before. One of our HITS instructors, Lauren DeGrief, is uh, on today. She, since last time I talked to her, I think it was in Chicago, the last time we talked uh, at our HITS seminar when we were in Chicago, and uh, since then, Lauren's had a few changes. She's moved and got some updates. So uh, I'll let Lauren uh, go ahead and introduce herself, talk about her background, and maybe uh, mention what she's up to today. So thanks uh, for coming on, Lauren. Thanks so much for having me. I am uh, so excited to be able to be back in person and um, at HITS coming up here in August. I know. Uh, I'm thrilled. I wish we were doing this interview in person, but soon enough. So since I last spoke in Chicago, I I left the Naval Research Laboratory where I was working before. I was um, a research chemist there doing work, um, anything that's related to odor that helps canine detection. And now I've moved over to Florida International University in Miami, Florida, and still staying in the same research field, except broadening a bit before I was focused on mostly explosives with a hint of narcotics. And now um, I can broaden um, beyond just explosives and narcotics to human remains or more general research that benefits the entirety of the canine uh, detection community. My background, as I mentioned, is I'm a chemist, a PhD chemist. I actually got my PhD at FIU, so everything has gone full circle now. And I have done research in this field for about 15 years now, and I love it. That's awesome. I'm happy to help. Let me ask you this. When you, uh, at some point when you decided you wanted to get into science and chemistry or whatever, you know, however you got into that career path, was the canine stuff even on your radar or were you thinking about something different? when you started this? No, it wasn't. I went to grad school. So my, my PhD is actually forensic chemistry. Um, and when I went to grad school, I thought I wanted to study arson, arson analysis. Yes. And the way it works, at least, I don't know about all grad schools, but the way it worked for my grad school is the first semester that we join as students, we start taking classes. And in order, then in order to start our research, we listen to little, little 10 minute presentations by all of the professors that are looking for students. Uh And I heard um, Dr. Ken Furton stand up and talk about at that point, he was doing majority of dogs detecting human scent. So like the bloodhounds tracking people or trailing people. And he talked about that. And I just had no idea that dogs were related to forensic chemistry. And I just thought it was the coolest thing I'd ever heard. And so I started doing research in his lab and I did my doctoral research with human scent collection and human remains, human decomposition, and did not basically stop the research <laughs> field. Kept going. And were you interested in dogs much before that, or did it just they just kind of? Uh, I mean, we had them? we had dogs, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but <laughs> that were basically trained to, you know, sit and lay down yeah. and fetch things. Yeah. But um, you know, I'm a, I'm a definitely an animal person, but and I've been you know, always interested in, like, I'd, I'd watch shows and read books and things related to canine detection, but I just had no, it didn't even cross my mind that that was a field that I could study. So um, it didn't really take a big, strong appeal until I just, I heard that um, that presentation by Ken Furton. And then I imagine once you got into it, probably got more, I guess the word for me is more addicted to it, the more you learn about it, the more you want yeah. to know about it. 
Absolutely. I mean, yeah, I got really into, I mean, man, I always, I tell my husband all the time that I wish I could go. I'm like, I asked him if he could, you know, financially support me so I can go back to school <laughs> again. Cause I want to get, you know, and now I want to get a PhD in behavior and yeah. I want to do, there's all kinds of things I want to do now, which, you know, I can't, I'm just going to live vicariously through lovely people like, you know, Dr. Nathan Hall and the such, um, Paul Bunker and good yeah. trainers like that. Um, but it, it's a, yeah, it's an awesome field. And on my side as a researcher, there's just so many questions that can be answered still. So it's like a never ending field of research. So we were talking a minute before we started the show today. And I think uh, you said one of the nice things is now that the that field of research is, is a little bit bigger for you now compared to what your, your assignment was with the Navy. Yeah. Um, so the way it worked at the Navy is that I had to do everything was funded. Um, and they were very, I will say working for the Navy, they had, a, they did give me a lot of leeway, but it did ultimately somehow need to be Navy relevant and it needed to be something that I could get sure. fund. I could go out and write a grant to get funding for. The nice thing about a university is yes, I need grants, but I don't solely need grants. And also there is no Navy relevant requirement. It's just, you know, science for science sake. Sure. So I have a lot I can do a lot more things and I can also start to do some side projects on things that maybe wouldn't be necessarily funded. Um, the greater funding gods tend to fund like sexy research projects, like fundamental research projects and not so much like what container is stores odor the best. Okay. That's not sexy, but like incredibly important. Sure. So some of those questions that I get asked when I give seminars um, like what container should I use? I can now actually explore that and get those answers back to the operational people unlike I was able to do before. So it's okay. really exciting for me. So let's jump into that because I think you've actually been able to work on that exact project, right? Yeah, so I'm, I'm starting. We are, we're doing it through the lens of human remains because human remains is honestly just a bit more complicated than your explosives and narcotics as far as containment goes because you now have a material that is rapidly changing on top of needing to prevent cross-contamination and things of that nature. So we're looking at different containers, different lids, things of that nature. Um, what I also forgot to mention to you earlier, Jeff, was um, we are working on a cross-contamination indicator. So I give a lot of talks and I tell people how just how the best practice for storing sure. things, but people may or may not listen to me and they and it may be because they just it's easier not to, or because logistically, especially if you have explosives and narcotics that have to be stored um, for certain security or safety reasons, you have to store everything together. Yeah. And so we, we're making a colorimetric indicator that will alert when there is a, when vapors have come out of a jar and thus indicate that there's potential cross-contamination of your, of your training aids. So and then a you sticker that I'll put on my training aid and if, if, yes. if it changes, it, it's telling me that there's something else in the environment? Uh-huh, exactly. Oh, outstanding. outstanding. So we're working on that. I have an awesome graduate student who is working on that. It's being filed for patent and I hope that it will get um, sold. It should be pretty inexpensive. It should just be little, little stickers. So... Small price, I think. Yeah, I think that would be a great uh, addition to just to, just to like you said to keep at least know what your what your aids are doing. Right. I don't <laughs> I don't have a solution for it. Like how you yeah. handle it once you get that is a different problem. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean it's, it's a good point, and I think that sometimes uh, you know, like I went to a really good class uh, that the ATF put on, and there was a, a scientist there, and she was very passionate about cross contamination and mm -hmm. really really good information. 
but when she did a demo, by the time she was done, she had literally almost gone through an entire box of gloves, you know, changing, which is, yeah. I understand in a, in a science field, but when we're trying to train a bunch of dogs and trying to get through something, you know, I think um, sometimes it doesn't seem quite as easy, you know, so I think uh, having something to at least be aware of, of what our aides are doing. Yeah, because, you know, the issue is that we're just never olfactory wise, we're just never going to be down at the level of the dogs as a human. So there could be cross contamination going on because of the way you stored your AIDS and you're just you're not going to know it. And it's not because you're not maybe you're doing everything right. It's just the reality of the situation. So to have something that could help aid the human and put them a little bit more at the dog's level then at least you have a piece of information and you can decide, okay, well, I'm going to use these for maybe some um, maintenance training, yeah. but I won't use them to imprint on. Perfect. Or, okay, I'm going to I'm going to switch Pelican cases yeah. and let these breathe for a while. And yeah. you can at least make some, some either changes or decisions about how you want to handle that material after you know that there is potential cross-contamination. I mean, at least you know what you're dealing with. And the idea, other idea is that, you know, you let's say you have a bag uh, that you purchased from a particular store and it gives you instructions on how long that um, seal should be good, but it's at room temperature, but realistically you're putting it in your trunk and you you have to put it in your trunk and it's hot. So the nice thing about that indicator is that it will, it doesn't care what temperature it is. It will tell you what, whether you have potential cross contamination or not, no matter where you've stored your material. Well, that sounds like a really exciting addition here. So I'm looking forward to that. And go back to the containers. You got into that with the human remains yeah. people. And, yes. and I think a lot of our listeners, you know, it's not as, there's not as many law enforcement officers that do the human remains stuff. So right. I guess, you know, we'll just talk about it real briefly. I've, I've been around it a little bit. I've done uh, some, some training with some of the, uh, the people who do it. The training aids are human remains. I think some people think it's, and I, I imagine there are some pseudo- alternatives maybe or i think that sometimes i've heard that they use pig's blood or something but i've also seen where they actually have human remains with absolutely and so i can imagine if if we're going to be talking about training aids that's got to be one of the most complicated ones to store handle and and, and so that was that probably why you picked that as the field to, to figure out the container part absolutely Absolutely. These are by far the most complicated. Yes, you do have narcotics and explosives that will degrade over time, but that timeline is very long, yeah. right? Yeah. And, and we do care about that. But the, the timeline on human remains degrading is obviously like immediate. It's happening at all times. Yeah, a lot of the people do have, I mean, they, have, they maybe they have blood or they have teeth or they have any time. It's, you know, it's, it's such a catch-22 here in the United States where you have the people who are doing the human remains stuff are the civilians, but they have to have body parts yeah, to train, yeah. which is kind of complicated. Um, in Europe and Canada, they have human remains detection dogs with um, you know, law enforcement. Yeah. So they have a little bit more access to that sort of stuff. But nonetheless, you have these materials that are changing. So um, we want to know what type of container do holds the odor at best, um, prevents the least amount of changing, or at least if it's going to change, it will change in a way that naturally mimics what would happen in the real environment. And all that information, it's much more complicated for the human remains, but all that information is going to inform sure. containment of explosives or containment of narcotics because they do degrade over time. They do, they are influenced by the environment. So if we could figure out what's best for human remains, then you can apply that 
across the board. So are you, is that research that's ongoing now or are you starting to get some, some good answers to some of that? It, no, it's ongoing. I mean, I've done some preliminary stuff and there's, I mean, I always suggest I like mason jars. If you have the actual mason jar lid with the um, Teflon seal on the bottom, um, laboratory grade jars that have Teflon um, liners on the bottom are the best, but those are hard to come by and very expensive. Yeah. Um, I don't even like buying them for <laughs> large studies because they're really pricey. So I still really like mason jars, but those are all, like I, so I've, the studies I've done, they're not published because it just wasn't that rigorous sure. of a study. And again, this was funding limited the Navy. So this is something I can actually go into detail now. Okay. Um, and other people have also looked at it um, I know Battelle did a study again. This was on, you know, ended up being unpublished. And then DSTL, who are the science, defense science and technology laboratory in the UK, um, has also done a study. Again, the results are not published, but they do have a based on their studies that they did internally. They they have flyer sort of things out that kind of give you suggestions on how best to store things or handle training aids. So the general consensus is glass jar with a really good lid. Okay. I know some people talk about like arson bags, um, some of those types of things. What you have an opinion on that? Yeah, I use like the Mylar bags yeah. personally a lot, but it, I do layers. So I put, if I have small, multiple small training aids, I will put each individual one in a Mylar bag and heat seal it. And then I put those inside my mason jar. And obviously this all comes down to like what size yeah. materials you're putting. I, 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 I'm, I'm only dealing with gauze pads when yeah. you guys are dealing with much larger. Yeah quantities but the thing about any of those bags is the closure so for instance the mylar bags i have they have ziploc type closures which are not as good compared to heat sealing sure. it but a heat sealer is really cheap so yeah. okay and then what about a, a pelican case pelican cases don't really hold odor in they are very good for protection but if we're going to say that the best thing to do is to do double containment so you have two layers of containment like i do the mylar bags and the glass jars your pelican case doesn't really get to count unfortunately okay as one of those because it's not really odor proof it has other function obviously it serves as protection physical protection yeah so it has other function but the uh foam in it is also sneaky because the foam can hold if you have training aid odor that has come out of its jar the foam it can get trapped in that foam okay so Airing out pelican cases is always a good thing to do. And how long would you have to air one out if you wanted to be? That's a fabulous question, but I don't know the answer to. <laughs> yeah, I. <laughs> so uh, yeah. I'll, I'll throw myself on the sword. We we try to do you know a, a, a good job with our aids. We have uh, took we we took our aids when we first got them. We put them into small glass containers. They aren't mason jar brands, but they're real similar to that. We got smaller ones that we bought at like Granger mm -hmm. or something. And yeah. then we put those, we took, we divided them all up. You know, they came in one big box. So I assume they were cross-contaminated when we bought them. Um, but well, your training aids were. Yeah, they came. Okay. That, and that's that's yep. not uncommon. We bought a kit. Yep. And it, yep, yep. it's one gigantic Pelican box with lots of aids yeah. in there. So I guess... How long it yes. sat there and where it was stored at the company we bought them from, I assume we're dealing with cross-contamination beginning. Uh -huh. but we took them, we got rid of most of the containers that they sent with it. We put them mostly in glass jars or we wrapped them up in new plastic bags. Then we put them mm -hmm. in a, um, Pelican cases. I think that's pretty common to what a lot of people do. Is that real bad based on your research? Is that 
I think that's handling the situation the best as possible. I think that's perfect. I, I mean, you can't, it comes to you how it comes to you. Sure. So, oh man, I had a, I had a handler call me and, uh, was like, and he sent me pictures of his new training kit. He's like, this is what I have. What should I train on first? And I'm like, you have fuel oil in there. And he's like, yeah. I'm like, you have fuel oil in there. Everything. I'm like, when you open the box, <laughs> when you open the box, does your entire thing, he had info in there. Yep. I'm like, does, does your entire thing smell like uh, gasoline? He's like, well, yeah. I'm like, your training aids all smell like gasoline. It doesn't matter what you train on first. <laughs> it's all going to be. But like, I mean, again, that's how he was given the material. Yeah. So what do you do? You're right. You take it out of that Pelican case. You put it in new containers and you, I would also let them, and this is obviously complicated for explosives because there's restrictions, but I sure. would let them off gas away from each other for as long as you can feasibly do it Okay. to try to get like, so if, if we're going to say that it all smells like, I, and I hope your case didn't have Anfo in it, but let's say it all does smell like Anfo. So if you have Anfo and it's sitting next to, um, well, it doesn't have much odor. It's sitting next to a jar of potassium chlorate, okay. right? So you're going to get a certain amount of that gasoline smell on that potassium chlorate. Yeah. Once you split those sources up, once you remove the gasoline source from the potassium chlorate, there's a finite amount of gasoline smell on that. Uh -huh. So now you take the, the potassium chlorate out of the jar it was in. Okay, so now you've removed a portion of that because a portion sure. of that smell is going to be on the thing so now you only have you have a given amount of gasoline smell that's on that potassium chlorate so what you can do is let that gasoline evaporate off and there's no as long as you don't put it next to the gasoline again it should be gone now i don't know how long exactly that would take but again because it's explosives and you're somewhat limited yeah. by safety just let it off gas as long as you can reasonably okay. do it so that same, and that I, will help. yeah. So if somebody's listening and they're doing, they're a drug dog handler. You could have the yeah. same thing if, if because like exactly. one of the agencies I train with quite a bit, their heroin. I mean, you can smell that stuff from a room away, yeah. but they store it all in the same. They have four pelican cases, and then it, those go into one lockbox. So I assume all of their stuff now smells like this real stinky heroin. So yeah. to rectify that, they could just take their meth out put it in a secured area and let it sit there for you know a that's, day yeah, or that's, whatever. Yeah, if you're dealing with something where you have cross contamination, you cannot get you can't go get fresh. You know, so yeah. you ha you have to figure out how to mitigate the problem. And so my my best practice would be change the container out, put a give it a fresh container and let it off gas okay. once it's in that fresh container. So say about drugs. Oh, marijuana for those who are still in states that are training on marijuana, marijuana is a really big problem too. Sure. One way that some people handle it where they have a limited, like if you have explosives magazines or drug safes, one thing they do is they do try to get two magazines or two drug yeah. safes and they put the higher volatility ones, the ones that have a lot of odor yeah. in one and the ones that have a little bit of odor in the other. So at the very least, you don't have like your potassium chlorate just covered with gasoline ampho sure, sure. smell. You might have your C4 with some gasoline smell, but your C4 is putting off a lot of odor on its own. Okay. So okay. again, mitigating problems that you cannot completely eliminate because of logistics. Yeah. So I guess just to wrap this up, like we're getting ready to do an inventory and I'm sure, you know, my situation is similar to a lot of places, a lot of people's. We're going to do an inventory on our explosive magazine real quick. 
that we'll be able to get rid I work with our bomb squad, so we're real fortunate we get to turn our aids over kind of regularly. But that would be a good time maybe to look at buying all brand new mason jars and yeah. just moving the stuff around. And even if we have cross-contaminate from one way or another, if we air out our, our pelican cases for a couple of days, yeah. buy new mason jars, put our stuff back in there, at least we're mitigating some of the contamination that we've done. Absolutely. Okay. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. When I give these talks, I realized, I remember the very first time I gave an odor chemistry talk, I felt like at the end, the handlers were just like, well, what, like what difference does it make? There's a million problems. Like, there, So yeah. <laughs> I don't want to make people feel like everything's contaminated. It's a big mess. There's nothing you can do. That's not the case. If you understand what can contaminate it, then you can figure out how to like best handle it. Like yeah. how do you best mitigate that situation that you... You don't have any control over your training aid coming wrapped in plastic and you don't want your dog to alert to plastic. So then how do you handle that? Yeah. You know, one of the things we've done that I think uh, probably even people, whether they're bomb or drug, we took parts of our explosives when we get them, we put them in different uh, mason jars and we kind of, we, we joke about, we kind of call that our good china so we <laughs> we only bring that out and when we bring it, you know, once in a while and when we do it, we make sure that wherever we put it is real clean. We just try to make sure that that's real pure odor. So if we're just doing some real basic odor stuff, we'll bring it out literally maybe once, twice a year and we're just trying to keep that as pure as possible knowing that we're screwing the other stuff up by putting it under cars and it, wherever. Absolutely. You know. So Absolutely. It, and I'm going to steal that good china from you. That is such a good, that's such a good way to explain it. <laughs> yeah, we just we're trying to keep one thing pure, and, and and I think it's worked out pretty good. And you know, if somebody wants to to think about that, yeah, there's nothing wrong with doing some training with contaminated material. You just don't want to do your imprinting, and you you want to have the occasional ability to put out pure. Sure, and I think but, we talked last time when when we were in Chicago on our, our last podcast. One of the important things too that I think we both agreed on is, is train with other agencies. So however I've yeah. screwed my aids up, hopefully mm-hmm. they've screwed them up a different way and then at least the dog's exactly. getting that. The, the common exactly. odor is the one we want. So Exactly. I know we yeah. also talked, you got some other uh, stuff going on and I want to pick your brain a little bit. You mentioned that you're doing some uh, studies right now on buried explosives. Yeah, we, um, we're taking some old work that was done in the... 90, late 90s and early 2000s, mm-hmm. that was when there was a huge push to locate uh, munitions. So they were mostly TNT-based um, for the most part. And that, so there's a lot of chemistry and almost even physics work looking at how the odor from TNT moved through soil and what would imp- could potentially improve detection from the surface. And we are, we're kind of repeating the TNT stuff and we're doing that in order to ultimately change those models and readdress it for IEDs. So we're going to be working on mostly ammonium nitrate based materials next. And so what we'll be looking at there is, you know, how fast does it move to the surface and then what what types of materials, what types of soil, I should say, limit or improve the movement of odor? And then how does moisture affect this? So we know generally when you have soil that's moist and you have a sunny day because of evaporation, you have the vapor get pulled to the surface. So we want to look at that specifically for IED type explosives. Okay. And are you, is there, I guess my first question on that is, is, 
Um, what's the timeline on that? Like if something's only been buried for a day, is that harder than if something's been buried for four or five weeks? So I, from, sorry, there's a lot of variables, which is why I'm having trouble. The sun and whatnot. So (laughs) it, as long as the source is still like, if you have a munition, it's leaking very, very slowly. And so you're going to get a constant source of TNT vapor. So the question is how fast does it get there? And then like, what time of day should I be running the dog? When is there the most odor? Um, And so we're just kind of going back and repeating that for the ammonium nitrate, which is a bit more complicated because ammonium nitrate basically smells like ammonia and there's a lot of ammonia in the soil. Okay. And there's a lot of microbes that, that produce ammonia. So we want to make sure that we're giving the dogs the best tools possible. So when how long is it going to take for that ammonia to rise above that background level? We don't want to confuse them, right? Sure. Um, and we don't want to stress them out. So how long is it going to take for it to rise above that background level? And same thing, is it what time of day? So um, ammonia is a lot lighter of a molecule. It's a very tiny molecule. So it floats. It will rise um, a lot higher than something like TNT. And the, I, the problem with that is that it can be your plume will kind of dissipate into a very thin plume much faster than TNT. So what type of day, what type of sunlight, what kind of, um, do you need moisture or not do you need in order to enhance detection? So I know you're at the beginning part of that. Um, I'm on the the TNT side. So at this point, we're just trying to make sure that our methods for looking at it match the previous people's methods. Uh Uh-huh. And then once we, that looks good, then we'll move to ammonium nitrate. So yeah, unfortunately, we're about a year or so off okay. on having anything. So hits 2023, you should have some really good data. <laughs> well, it's, it's a real important thing. And I guess it, it's also, I don't know if you'll get into it or not, but one of the dogs, I work two dogs, and one of my dogs is a gun and currency dog. So we search a lot of uh, houses and, and a lot of backyards. Some of these guys bury money. Uh-huh. So, right. uh, you know, is there, a, when I'm doing that, it's it's typically their federal deals. So that's very early in the morning. Is that advantageous or should I be trying to do that later in the day? Because not the easiest thing trying to find buried money. <laughs> I imagine not. That didn't even occur to me. But from from what exists that's more general, the like late morning is a really good time because you get the cooling and the dew in the early morning and then as it starts to warm up slightly so what happens is that when you get that that, that moisture you get vape the smells yeah. like locked into that moisture so you'll get the dog has to you know bring its nose really really low to the ground as you get a little bit of warmth you get that evaporation and it starts to release okay. so you get a little bit higher concentration but if you get like midday if you get like at noon your plume is now going to be quite dispersed. So it's going to be a little bit harder for them to find the plume because you don't have that concentrated odor there. So like mid-morning on a, I mean, we're talking when it's normal weather. Yeah. So. And um, I would imagine if I'm doing this in the winter here in Colorado, I'm kind of screwed. (laughs) You have a different problem. (laughs) I'm kind of screwed. Yeah, that's a whole other problem. (laughs) Yeah, there's probably isn't too much odor there. Yeah. That's, oh man, I, I work a lot, or I used to before COVID, work um, a lot with people in Canada and I just, I just don't have good answers. Yeah. It's just really hard. Yeah. But um, I guess, I but, guess instead of, I, I'm not trying to get solid answers. I think it's just good for, 
handlers to realize that you know maybe think about your environment more and, and you deal with the right. environment you're in so you know what i tell people when it's super super cold you, we just have to do a much more detailed search has been my mm-hmm. has been my experience whether that's yeah scientific your or plume not is gonna be, yeah no you're absolutely right because your odor plume is going to be very tiny so yeah. it just doesn't move around in the air as much so let's say that you have the same amount of which is a different you don't necessarily but let's say you have the same amount of odor in cold versus warm temperature your plume is going to be much lower and closer to the source than it would be on a hot day sure. so that which is why you end up having to detail more now of course you're also challenged by having less odor so yeah yeah hard so doing a really large area search is going to be really challenging when it's cold out yeah so on that same note if i was setting up a training day and it was you know a nice springtime here were decent temperatures and everything and i wanted to work on buried hides i know you're early in your study but say if you were here and we were going to bring in 25 different dogs that we were going to train buried hides that day just you know in the environment we work in we can't go and bury six sticks of dynamite and come back a week later. So are we wasting our time by trying to bury it, you know, four or five inches deep and then letting it sit for an hour and then? No, it should start coming up by then. It should okay. start moving. Okay. I mean, it depends on what you have it encased in, obviously, because you have to take into account if you have it in, like, I don't know why you would do this, but if you were to bury a pipe bomb, you know, it takes a lot longer for sure. the odor to come out of the pipe bomb. Sure. So that's a different... But if you're talking like for some reason, if I was going to just dump TNT open yeah. into the soil, sure, four or yeah. five inches down, that odor should come out pretty, pretty quickly, really reasonably quickly. I don't have yeah. an exact number on yeah. it, but yeah. um, well, so, so you're talking you're talking a limited number of hours, not days. Yeah, so it's it's valuable to train it either way. I mean, I think absolutely at least at least get the dog used to finding something in that environment. Well, you mentioned something that I, it's uh, kind of on the same topic, but you mentioned it, so I want to pick your brain out real quick. Pipe bombs. Uh, when when I see a pipe bomb as a bomb dog handler, and if they know how to make a good pipe bomb and it's glued ends and the fuse mm-hmm. is glued all up and everything, do I have much uh, chance of, of success on that? And have you guys looked at those kind of things? I haven't, but there is some, some actually, I think it might be the same group of people who dealt with uh, the TNT through the soil years ago. Basically, you have to, it's very, very hard to have made that pipe bomb without getting any odor on the outside. Sure. I mean, that stainless steel or that galvanized pipe, it soaks up odor really, really well and then it slowly lets it off. That's good. So, which is why in Europe they use those as um, to collect human scent. For human scent lineups, yeah. they use stainless steel bars. So the metal is pretty, and plastic we know is really good at soaking up odor. So all that stuff can soak up odor on the outside. The problem is, this is kind of like what I was saying with the potassium chloride, they got gasoline on it, is that you, once you close that pipe bomb up, you have a finite amount of odor on the outside. And once it's all evaporated off. Then it's gone. That, that's, that's what you got, unless it's leaking through. Um, a top or a side or what have you. Now, if they got residue on it, then you're in good luck because that source is going to last a lot longer. The odor from that residue, from physical residue, that will last quite a bit longer. Okay. So you just got to cross your fingers at that point. (laughs) Well, there's a lot of that, I think so. (laughs) Yeah. But I think, uh, you know, we've been talking mostly about explosive stuff, but it's all relevant whether you work a bomb dog, a drug dog, a gun dog, a money dog. Absolutely. It's all the same thing. 
Yeah, odor is odor. That's why, you know, when I do these studies, I pick something, but that doesn't, it doesn't, it often answers questions across a broader um, spectrum in the operational field. So with all of the stuff you've done up to this point, if you were in my shoes and you had a, you were going to go train a brand new bomb dog, what would be the first uh, odor you'd want to imprint the dog on? Are we talking about explosives? Yeah. See, I don't know personally. The so I've I've been asked this before, sure. and I don't know I you had. because I don't know enough. I don't know enough about dog training. So here's my question: Do you, for you, is do you start on something harder or something easier, or do you start in the middle? I like to start on something what I what I what I believe is easy, but I don't know if that's a scientific thing. Like what I'll do is because we use a marker training, so I just want to be able to show the dog that uh, you know once he shows a little interest in this large odor that's in a very very blank room, then we'll mark that and just to teach him how to hunt for that odor. So you know most of the time I'll use three or four or five sticks of like um, either C four or even. like we have some Semtex, something that I believe. That's what I was going to say. I was going to say I would I would start with C four or something in the plasticizer range because it's got um, it's got a lot of odor and it's a stable odor. It doesn't change much over time. If you were for some reason specifically concerned about IEDs, I would even though Anfo probably has the most odor, I would be a little bit hesitant to start there because I would be concerned that the dogs would fixate on the diesel fuel or whatever the fuel is. So you kind of have to think about the end game there, but I think C4 would be a good way to start uh, in a more general manner and then, you know, work your way up and down. That's kind of what we do. The ladder of difficulty. Yeah. Yeah. And I guess finally, I wanted to talk to you. I know you have a book out, so you want to talk a little bit about that project? Because that's a, you, you mentioned it's a huge book. Yeah, um, it got a little. <laughs> we got we. Um, I'm working with uh, Craig Schultz, who is a forensic canine handler. Uh, he actually probably has a much better title than that that I don't know offhand. At the but he's at the FBI. So we worked on this book together, and we invited um, a handful of scientists that we know and also practitioners to write chapters in this book. And it got um, we get a lot of people on board, and now it's almost 800 pages. But it is out. It's called Canines, the Original Biosensor, and it covers um, science. More or less of the science is at a practitioner level, at least the chapters that I wrote, I wrote for practitioner level. Um, I think there are some that are maybe a little bit more heavy science. And then we also have ones that are written by practitioners. So that's, so the idea is that it is aimed at the broader community that is interested in canine detection science. Um, And so we have like the beginning, we have odor sections, we have sections on behavior, we have applications. So we try to cover a whole bunch of different topics that might be interesting to a variety of people. And um, there is a I wish I don't, I don't have it on me, but there is a, it's currently 30% off if you buy it through the publisher, which okay. is t- Taylor and Francis. Um, but if you Google canines and the original biosensor and you pick the, the one that is the publisher, if you do JSP 30 as the promo code, you'll get 30% off. Okay. Uh, and I'll put the link to that in the show notes. So, and then they can put the JSP 30 in there. Cool. I'll, I'll get that to you. And, and I will also okay. confirm that I am not making that promo code up. I'm okay. pretty, I'm, 
95% sure it's JSP30. Okay, yeah, if you give it to me, I'll, I'll put that in the show notes. So if somebody's listening, because of what I what I understand what you're saying, I haven't seen the book yet, but um, it, so there's a lot of, it's not just scientists, there's a lot of people with leashes in their hand out there Absolutely. applying yeah. stuff and working with scientists. So sounds yes, like an excellent there's many. I mean, the other, that's why I included um, Craig Schultz on the, as one as my co-editor because he is fully operational he does have you know he has a behavior background but he is he's an operational guy and i wanted to make sure that that it didn't yeah. fall too heavy on the science side and yeah. that we got both sides of the coin perfect sounds i'm looking forward to it very forward to it and i'm also looking forward to, to seeing you again in august so we'll yeah i look forward to seeing running. you guys too yeah and you, we got a couple classes so I always tell people, you know, if you like this podcast, this is a good example of, I know that uh, when you're at hits, people come by and hitch up in between classes and in the evening and stuff. So I don't think you ever mind that. It's a good way to... Absolutely. No, I love it. Especially now, since it's been such a long time. Yeah. I think hits will be my first... Yeah, I think it'll be my first canine conference back since the yeah, since pandemic. Good. I'm very excited about it. <laughs> good. Well, we're looking forward to it too. So, thanks again for taking the time today. I know you're real busy, but uh, it's it's fun catching up with you, and I'm uh, really looking forward to all the new stuff you got going. Absolutely. Thanks so much for having me. Okay. Thanks, Lauren. Take care. Well, thanks for listening, to, uh, Lauren. Today, she has a ton of information, and I really enjoy the fact that, uh, for as smart as she is, being a scientist. She's able to really relate to our field, and I think she really explains a lot of the science stuff in in ways that canine handlers like myself, hopefully our listeners, can all kind of relate to and understand. So I really like listening to Lauren. I get to, I feel lucky I get to pick the brains of people like this. Lauren's going to be at uh, HITS this year, as uh, she often is. So HITS will be in Orlando this year. HITSK9.net is where you go to get the information. You can check out what classes Lauren's teaching. She's doing one for bomb dog handlers and one for narcotics dog handlers. So they'll be really good classes. And as well as uh, you get to see quite a few of the, the vendors we have. Uh, to name a few, again, as always, uh, Horton's Canine Equipment. They're going to be there. They make it's family-owned business, and they make uh, leashes and collars and very high-quality equipment. Uh, just about anything you need for your dog. Gallant Technologies is a new vendor. They're, all their information is on the Hits Canine website. You can check them out. High Drive Canine and Highline Canine are both uh, uh, dog trainers and vendors, and they both do. A, they're both ran by uh, people who are experienced in our profession. Jason Ferguson at Highline Canines teaching a class and High Drive Canine is uh, Scott Clark. He's also teaching a class. So as we always uh, like to explain that even though they're vendors and they're teaching classes, our vendors cannot and will not do infomercials. So the classes have to be good information. We pay our vendors and our, our pay our instructors, I mean. That uh, so they they have to teach teach good classes and then they can do any sales at the vending hall. So we try to make a good hard line on that, but at the same time we can tap into a lot of the expertise that we have in our vendor area. So we're always uh, very thrilled that our vendors will step up and teach classes for us. It uh, helps us a lot, but uh, they also all respect that you're coming there to learn something, not to be sold something. So it's uh, been a great rule that we've had and really good feedback from all of the attendees, the thousands that have come to HITS over the years. So check all, all that information out, hitsk9.net. And as usual, if you need anything or want to email me feedback, questions, anything, show suggestions, jeff at hitsk9.net, jeff at hitsk9.net for anything you need. Thanks, guys. Stay safe. Hits Radio. 
This is the official HITS training and consulting podcast. We are America's law enforcement canine training resource. We're raising the training bar for police dogs everywhere by discussing the intricate details of the training techniques used by the experts. HITS Radio is merging the training world with the real world. You've been there. We've been there too.